This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Deadly Faith Podcast. Hey, heathens, I'm Lacey. And I'm Lola. And if you're deconstructing, deconstructed, deconverted, dealing with religious trauma, or love true crime, hell, maybe it's all of the above, then you need to subscribe to Deadly Faith. On this podcast, we explore the world where religion and crime collide. Maybe someone takes their religious beliefs a tad too far. Maybe someone is hiding their evil behind their man or woman of God persona. Maybe they started a cult, committed murder, or even believe that they are the second coming of Jesus Christ himself. Now, this isn't a world full of sunshine and rainbows, but it's a world that needs to be explored. So get ready for some deep dives, hard truths, and even some comedic relief as we tell these heartbreaking true crime stories. What I have learned is that perpetrators are insatiable and they will not stop because you asked nicely. You know, my father wouldn't stop because we begged and pleaded. My father wouldn't listen to reason. And on the larger scale, this culture will not stop killing the planet because we asked nicely. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hi, folks, it's Gary Allen. Thanks for joining me once again on Holy Heretics for honestly one of those episodes that kind of defies categories. As you know, we spend a lot of time in the faith deconstruction space, helping former evangelicals heal and recover from religious fundamentalism. But today's guest transcends that genre to encapsulate a broader perspective on the culture at large, a culture, frankly, our culture that we participate in and benefit from, which is fundamentally and pragmatically built on injustice, oppression, exploitation, violence, planetary destruction, and dehumanization. I've often said that living in the United States is a daily dose of trauma, politically, socially, sexually, economically. Our political leaders have all but completely abdicated their responsibility to create a just and meaningful society, and we are on the brink of planetary extinction, and it doesn't seem like anybody gives a shit. So, we exist in what John Dominic Crossan called a domination system, and it's shorthand for a way of organizing society in a hierarchical, power-driven way where the masses are politically oppressed, economically exploited, and socially marginalized. And this same system has a demonic disregard for the natural world, for the environment, for the future of our planet. We see it only as something to be exploited and not cared for. In the words of today's guest, Derek Jensen, in order for us to maintain this way of life, we must tell lies to each other and to tell lies to ourselves. Truth must be avoided at all costs. The truth about our economy, about our dying planet, about our way of life, about violence and domination at the family and the cultural level truth about the daily injustices that rule the lives of so many people here in our country. 
And I'll be honest, this deep conversation asks a lot more questions than it answers. And I may have already even lost you in this introduction, but I hope you'll stick with me because I really believe that this is one of the most important conversations we will ever have on the show. We will attempt to answer questions today like, how do we confront evil and injustice faithfully? What might it look like for you and I to reconnect with the natural world? And how might that make you more fully human? And what does it mean to tell the truth about what's really going on on the personal and the public and the political level in our country. As Franz Kafka wrote, you may not destroy someone's world unless you are prepared to offer a better one. Well, let's offer a better one. What better world are you and I willing to co-create, and what links can we go to in order to make this tired old world more equitable, more just, and more humane? And to help us navigate those questions and, and potentially even come up with some answers, I am over the moon to be joined today by Derek Jensen. Hailed as the philosopher-poet of the environmental movement and a leading voice in cultural dissent, Derek Jensen is an American eco-philosopher, writer, author, teacher, and environmentalist. He explores the nature of injustice how civilizations devastate the natural world, and how human beings retreat into denial at the Destruction of the Planet, author of 21 books, including A Language Older Than Words, The Culture of Make-Believe and Endgame. He was named one of Utney's Reader's 50 Visionaries Who Are Changing Your World. Jensen unflinchingly examines the culture's darkest corners while searching for a way forward. In a language older than words, he draws on his own experience of childhood abuse to examine violence as a pathology that inflicts every life on the planet. Derek, welcome to the show. I, I can't tell you how much of an honor it is to, to chat with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. Well, I know you are working on other projects, um, but I'd like to start the conversation with your book, A Language Older Than Words. I think I told you off air, I read it just as the world shut down for COVID in spring of 2020. And honestly, I can't think of a better book to have read during that time as we watch the natural world respond and regenerate so positively as uh, humanity sort of retreated <laughs> into our homes. I guess I have two questions around that book to start us on this conversation about environmentalism and caring for this, this beautiful planet that we live on. What is this language that is older than words that the stars spoke to you as a child? And maybe what is the backstory that prompted you to write what Matthew Fox called an inspiring guide to self-discovery, personal salvation, and the survival of our humanity and the planet? Well, thank you for the great questions. Um, the, the backstory, which we'll end up getting to the language probably, the, the backstory was that I wanted to write a book about interspecies communication and about how um, I would ask people, have you had conversations with non-humans? And almost all of them would say yes. And that they could be as something as simple as how does the dog let you know that the water dish is empty. The dog looks at you, looks at the water dish, looks at you, looks at the water dish and has effectively communicated with you. And the the thing that, that I, I found pretty interesting was that 
when I would ask, a lot of people were, there were conversations like that. And then a lot of people would also talk about they'd had conversations with trees or conversations with other um, non-humans and they would um, invariably say, yes, I have them all the time, but I've never talked to anybody about this. And so, what I got really interested in is sort of the disjuncture between our public and private discourse surrounding that subject in general, that it's like so many people were having them and nobody was talking about it. So, I was going to write this really happy book about um, just examples of people's of people's experiences communicating with non-humans. And I tried to write that book for a year or two and I just couldn't do it. And I finally realized that the problem was that writing a book that purports to show that non-humans are sentient still holds up humans as a standard by which all the others are judged. And so, if they act like humans, then they must be intelligent. And if they don't, then they must not. And that just didn't that didn't feel like an accurate uh, way to examine it. And then the, another problem that I was having was that the book I was going to write, like I said, was going to be this really happy book of all these people having all these interactions. But honestly, our relationship with non-human animals at this point is not particularly happy. And so, it would be fundamentally dishonest on that level. So, I'm still stuck. And then I realized that the question isn't, can they or can't they communicate? The question is, why do some of us listen and some of us don't? And really, the book sort of exploded at that point. And then I realized another thing. I still wasn't ready to write. I still couldn't quite get there, but I was, I was closer. And then the next thing I realized is that before you can exploit somebody, you have to silence them. And that really facilitates their, their exploitation. And then I'm still kind of stuck. And then what started is the first sentences of the book came to me and they are, in order to maintain this way of living, we must tell lies to each other and especially to ourselves. It's not necessary that lies be particularly believable, but merely that they be erected as barriers to truth. And then I was off and running and I wrote the book in a year. So that was originally the, the first paragraph and it became the second paragraph when about halfway through the book, another line came to me, which is there is a language older by far and deeper than words. It's the language of bodies. You know, it's, it's very interesting. I'll just, I'll just be really honest. And then these politically correct days, even saying something like this will get me in trouble, but everything gets us in trouble. That my niece is, is married to a Chinese man and they speak Chinese quite often. And I mean, her family does her, she has four children. They, they all speak Chinese. I don't speak Chinese. And honestly, it sounds like gibberish to me. And it's the same the other way, you know, that people who can't speak English, we, it sounds like we're all saying, you know, just whatever. So, the, the point is that just because something sounds like nonsense to me doesn't mean that it's nonsense. You know, if I read, if I see Arabic writing or if I see Cyrillic writing um, or I see Leonardo da Vinci's backward writing, you know, that all looks like nothing to me. It, here's the point. The fact that I can't decode something doesn't mean somebody isn't communicating. Years ago, I interviewed this guy, Cleve Baxter. He's the guy who was, got fairly famous for, he ran a, a lie detection school. And at one point, he's just hanging out doing nothing. And he decides to attach electrodes, the lie detector electrodes to a plant. And he 
does it and then he thinks he's just going to water the plant and see how long it takes for the the water to get up to the leaves to change the conductivity of the leaves. That'll be an interesting experiment, see how long it takes the water to get up. And then he's sitting there and, you know, basically lie detectors work by getting a response to to a threat to perceived safety. And so he thought, well, why don't I just burn a leaf? And the moment he thought that, the thing went off the chart. And the point here is, is not that particular experiment, but the, the point is that one of the things he said to me when I interviewed him in 96 or 95 or somewhere in there is the instruments of science are getting sensitive enough that we can no longer maintain the illusion that nobody else communicates. And the reason I bring that up is because there's this guy, Stefano Mancuso, who's doing this great work in Italy on plant sentience and plant communication. And he's established a lexicon of like 1,200 words. I put words in air quotes because they're really chemical phrases that the plants will send out that say, hey, we're getting chewed on by a certain type of caterpillar. Change your leaf structure. They'll send out chemical messages or um, they'll say, hey, there's aphids on us. Can some... uh, can some ladybugs come, you know, they'll send out a 911 call for ladybugs. Um, wow. And the, there's all these sorts of communications going on all the time. Or here's another cool thing, not from language older than words, but from a different book. Trees in a forest, it ends up, determine where they're going to grow their branches based on future considerations of where light will be in the understory when the branch gets there. Like if it takes three years to grow the branch, there's a great definition of intelligence that is basically decisions made and actions in the service of future inclusive fitness, I believe. I like that definition of intelligence pretty well. There's a story that I I talked about there called about this horse called Clever Hans. And Hans lived 120 years ago or 140 years ago or something. And Hans is very clever. He could count, he could multiply, he could divide, he could find cube roots, he could find, uh, you know, he could find something to the third power. So they would say, what is three cubed? And the horse would paw 27 times. This is extraordinary. They went out, took him all over. And what they eventually found was that Hans really wasn't so clever. And the reason that Hans wasn't so clever is because he couldn't actually say that three cubed is, is 27. Instead, he was paying very close attention to the person who was asking the question, and the person would relax ever so slightly when Hans got to the right number. If the person who asked the question didn't know the answer, Hans couldn't stop tapping at the right place. But the point is, if you had a choice between having a friend who can find you know, the, what's three to the third power, or a friend who can read and respond to your slightest movements and muscular and emotion, which would you rather have? And so, the point is that we have very specific definitions of intelligence. A language older than words is is really about denial and it's about the lengths we will go to pretend that, for example, non-humans, by which I'm including plants, aren't sentient and thus we can rationalize our abuse of them. And the same thing happens in the book. I talk about my father was extremely abusive and I talk about that abuse and I talk about the lengths that we would go to pretend that the violence was happening. There's a great line by R.D. Lang that's not in that book, but a different one. R.D. Lang, the psychiatrist, said that the three rules of a dysfunctional family are rule A is don't. 
rule A1 is rule A does not exist. And rule A2 has never discussed the existence of rules A, A1, or A2. Mm-hmm. And so what this meant within our family is we could talk about anything we wanted except for the violence that we had to pretend wasn't happening. And then, of course, we couldn't mm-hmm. talk about the fact that we weren't talking about the violence we had to pretend wasn't happening. And then we couldn't talk about the fact that we weren't talking about the fact that we weren't talking about the fact that we weren't talking about the violence that wasn't happening and so on and so on. It's just complete crazy making. And the same thing happens on a larger scale. We can talk all we want about Dodgers, you know, the LA Dodgers collapsing in the in the playoffs. And I'm glad to talk about that too. Um, but we can't talk about the corporations that run society. You know, we live in this great democracy. I used to ask people all over the country, do you believe the government takes better care of human beings or corporations? And nobody ever said human beings. This is all corporations. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't even include non-humans. And so we we end up with this completely absurd uh, relationship to reality. And so we can, you know, we believe all sorts of complete nonsense and then, you know, don't allow ourselves to go back to sort of first principles and say, what's real? There's this guy in the 60s, Lester Laborski, did this really interesting experiment where he attached electrodes to people's eyeballs and then he would track where they would look and he would show them pictures. And he found if the picture contained something that was threatening to their worldview, their eyes wouldn't even track to it once. So they would know where not to look. And then he would ask them later, did the picture contain such and such? And they would say, no, it didn't. And they weren't lying. It's that they had known where not to look so that they would not break their denial. Mm-hmm. And when I learned about that, there happened to be this news thing, this thing happening in the news that was a great example of this. It was a DEA agent in Columbia whose wife was smuggling drugs in the United States. And when she got caught, what they both said was that he had no idea it was happening. And she said that she was doing lines of cocaine in front of him. He'd walk through the room and he wouldn't see it. Everybody agreed that he wasn't lying. And I don't know about you, but you know, I don't know if I'm the only person on the planet who's ever been in a terrible relationship. But when I, I was, it's like anybody who said anything is like, why are you trying to ruin my perfect relationship? And then I want to get out of it. It's like, oh my God, how did I not see that? We all do this. The reason I'm going on about this is because I'm I'm so fascinated by our mechanisms of denial, whether it's on the personal level or whether it's on the, the global ecological scale um, or anywhere in between. That just it, it fascinates me, of course, to see it in myself too, but it fascinates me to see how we can have entire countries. I'm, I'm thinking Nazi Germany, you know, you have an entire country just go completely bonkers. Um, how do we end up believing? I like that because I remember in your book, you talked about the lies we have to tell ourselves to continue to maintain the civilization that we are living in. And I want to kind of pivot and talk a little bit about the following words that you wrote in a language older than words. You said, every morning when I wake up, I ask myself whether I should write or blow up a dam. Every day I tell myself I should continue to write. Yet I'm not always convinced I'm making the right decision. When you listen to those words, you know, 24 years later, what do they communicate to you? What are you hearing in them? And do you feel like you're continuing to make the right decision? Because when I I look at the world today, 
Um, and, and again, we primarily talk about the domination and the destruction and the violence of religious fundamentalism on the world, on the planet, and in particular right now on American democracy. And there are times when I just think, you know what, we're talking about all this, we're writing about this, we're having conversations, but the, the terrible people are continuing to do the things that they are continuing to do. Is it ever appropriate for us to do something drastic, to blow up a dam? What, what does that mean to you when, when you hear it today? Well, thank you for that. And you're really getting to the heart of that question because the question goes to analysis is incredibly important. Analysis will inform our actions. Analysis can help uh, inoculate us against certain bad things. I don't We can go whatever direction you want with bad things. It, analysis can be really important, but ultimately analysis doesn't change physical reality and somebody has to act. So, salmon aren't being killed because there are not enough books. <laughs> They're being killed because there's too many dams <laughs> and among, among other reasons. And so, at some point, somebody has to, to do something. And let's just go to the extreme example that George Elser, I, I think about not infrequently, who was – he attempted to assassinate Hitler in 1939. And he was a trade unionist who didn't like what Hitler had done to the trade unions. He had this meticulous plot that involved stealing explosives, um, getting a job at a mine so he could steal explosives, and then putting a, a bomb in a restaurant where Hitler was going to give a speech. And the only reason that it failed was because it was foggy that night. He set a timer and it was supposed to go off about three quarters of the way, through, I believe, through Hitler's speech. And because it was so foggy, um, Hitler couldn't take the plane, which means he had to move the speech up so he could fit his special training with the train schedule. Mm -hmm. So, it blew up like 15 minutes after it was done. Wow. And everybody who every, – every serious historian of World War II – believes that with Hitler dead in 1939, World War II doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that that's appropriate for the United States because we don't have the same sort of power structure. There isn't that same sort of power invested in one person that there was in 1939 Germany. So, people can hate Trump or Biden all they want. I'm saying this because I'm doing an analysis of assassination, which is very serious. And I don't <laughs> think that that's appropriate in these circumstances mm. um, because I don't think the circumstances are analogous to – historians are generally in agreement that one person could have stopped and almost did stop World War II. You know, I wrote my book Endgame. Really, part of it was about – was that we can also kill just as much by inaction as we do by action. Mm. And one of the things I wanted to do is to, to remove inaction from its moral high ground. You know, it's very interesting that I have, a, I have tremendous respect for Chris Hedges. And we've only spoken in person a couple, three times on the phone several times, but I would still consider him a friend. And I, I have tremendous respect for him. And he and I have uh, learned complementary lessons from our experiences of violence. And I think both lessons are incredibly important. And one of the lessons that Chris Hedges learned from being in war zones was that uh, violence does great harm. And it does great harm to everybody involved, bystanders, perpetrators, victims. And that is, I think, an incredibly important lesson. And 
what I have learned is that perpetrators are insatiable and they will not stop because you asked nicely. You know, my father wouldn't stop because we begged and pleaded. My father wouldn't listen to reason. And on the larger scale, this culture will not stop killing the planet because we asked nicely. And we can put this into other terms and see it very clearly. Gandhi basically wrote Hitler a letter asking him to stop. And at this remove, we can say it's just absurd. Or another way to say this is one of the things I've said for decades now is if space aliens came from outer space and they were systematically doing to the planet what the capitalists are doing, what the industrial system, what the entire economic system is doing, not just the capitalists because the communists did the same thing, but the industrial system is doing, if it was vacuuming the oceans, if it was putting docks in every mother's breast milk, if it was changing the climate, we would resist much more than we're doing now. Um, but the problem mm. is that we've been just inculcated into this system since since birth. Since That's part of the problem. Another part of the problem is we've been made dependent for our very lives on this system. I just saw this thing the other day, this article about how right now industrialized nations are starting to have a crisis of population, which is that people aren't having enough babies. I mean, all these articles I see about this, like Putin the other day, this was like a month ago, he said that um, he was going to have another sort of sex holiday where people are supposed to stay home from work and have sex so they can have more babies. And Japan, Japan <laughs> has done the same thing. And it's like, we're tremendously in overshoot. We need to have a lot fewer babies. But the problem is that we're in this Ponzi scheme where as soon as it stops expanding, the whole thing's going to start collapsing. And that terrifies all of us. Mm-hmm. All of us humans, I think. I think non-humans are going. Can, can you please, please, please slow down? And my point here is that <laughs> right. I guess there's a long-winded way of getting to. I wish, I wish with every cell in my body that we could have reasonable discussions about population, reasonable discussions about the killing of the planet, reasonable discussions about any of the issues that face us, reasonable discussions about you know rape culture or reasonable discussions about religion for crying out loud it's or reasonable discussions about any issue of the day reasonable discussions about conflicts between Russia and Ukraine i'm not saying that if we would talk honestly about things that there would never be any conflict there would still be lots of conflict and probably lots of violent conflict you know I want your land. Can it, can we at least be honest? <laughs> you know, of course we can't because that gets back to the best sentence I ever wrote, which was the first sentence of language, all the words, which was in order to maintain a way of living, we must tell lies to each other. I mean, here's the thing is if, if my father could have been honest about what he was doing to us, then he wouldn't have been doing it, would he? So, it's, right. it's kind of silly for me to expect him to be able to be honest about it. This leads to another problem, which is that Two things. One is I think that we use more of our sentience instead of actually addressing problems to figure, to rationalize doing whatever it is we wanted to do in the first place. And another mm-hmm. part is I think that one of the things that that is is in my analysis that I don't see in a lot of other people's analysis is I think that a lot of the things that we do are not fundamentally rational and therefore not really amenable to rational solution. And what I mean by that is I think we have an entire culture that is suffering from complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I interviewed Judith Herman, one of the most important interviews I ever did. She wrote Trauma and Recovery, great, great book. 
And one of the things she talked about is how children, okay, so the difference between PTSD and complex PTSD is that PTSD, something happens to you once, like you're in an earthquake and then you don't want to live in an earthquake zone. It scares you. Or a woman is is raped in a certain make and model of car, as the example that Judith Herman used. And she might not like that type of car anymore. It makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Complex PTSD mm-hmm. is not what if you are traumatized once, but what if you are held in captivity or raised in captivity. And what she means by that is prisoners and um, victims of domestic violence, et cetera. And she says one of the things that happens is that you come to believe that all relationships are based on hierarchy, that all relationships are based mm-hmm. on the strong take as they will, the weak survive as they must. And what she's done with that is she basically was describing Richard Dawkins' selfish gene theory. And the whole selfish gene theory is, in my perspective, a brilliant description of life if you've been raised in captivity. And if you believe this traumatic perspective, so many indigenous people have said to me that the fundamental difference between Western and indigenous ways of being is that even the most open-minded Westerners perceive listening to the natural world as a metaphor as opposed to the way the world really is. And they perceive the world as consisting of resources to be exploited as opposed to other beings to enter into relationship with. When you said violence and evil doesn't always come dressed in black and it doesn't always look like Charles Manson, often it comes to us with a simple plea to be reasonable. And I feel like that that explains much of the Western world. It explains much of the United States government. It explains much of our economy and the way in which we live and move and have our being on on this planet. Is that kind of what you were getting at as it relates to to some of this? In my book, Culture Make-Believe, one of the lines I wrote that I was the most pleased with was that any hatred felt long enough no longer feels like hatred. It feels like economics or religion or tradition or just the way things are. That, you know, there's the old cliche about if you're, you know, a fish can't really describe water. In Peggy Reeves Sanday's book, Female Power and Male Dominance, she looks across culturally some of the distinctions between high rape and low rape cultures. There are, there are cultures where rape is much less frequent than in other cultures. And she looks at some of the commonalities for high rape cultures. And one of the things that she puts in there is that one of the markers often for a high rape culture is a male creator deity as opposed to a female mm. creator deity or a couple creator. I first heard that. Judith Herman mentioned in the interview. I was 33 years old. And it had never occurred to me how weird it is to have a male creator deity. <laughs> right. And I grew up I grew up in the country. I grew up seeing cows and horses and and dogs and cats and others having babies. I knew who creates life. And also from a very young age, I knew that the male role in this creation is pretty short, you know? Right. And I didn't have any excuses. I'm not that stupid, but it never occurred to me until <laughs> I was 33 or however was however old I was when I interviewed Judith Herman. And she said that. And then even more so than her saying, you know, female creator deity, is she also said, you know, and that's kind of odd when you think about it. I was like, she had to actually point out to me that it's odd before I got it. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. I left the religion when I was maybe 17 or 18. And one day in my mid-20s, I was thinking about masturbating 
And it still occurred to me that that's sinful. And then it suddenly occurred to me, nobody's getting hurt, presuming there is God. Why would God care? And then that, that led to an interesting thing because morality is all based on relationship. You know, if there's no relationship at all, then there's, you know, there's nothing to be good or evil about. Even though I'd left the religion a long time before, that story about Onan still- Oh, yeah. Spilling a seed. Yep. Stuck with me for- It's ridiculous. I'd left the religion seven or eight years before and it still affected something that was that intimate. There's a great line that I got from somebody, you know, Robert Coombs, I think, unquestioned assumptions are the real authorities of any culture. Mm. And that's one way we can end up with all the pleas to be reasonable or anything else is that I went through the unquestioned assumption that God is a male creator, even though I'd left the religion, you know, at 17 or something, I still, it was an unquestioned assumption that if there's a God, he's a dude. How did certain things become normal? And that's a brilliant, brilliant question. How did the wage economy become normal? How did capitalism become normalized? How did the notion of kings and queens become normalized? How did a male creator deity, how did, you know, humans are for good reason, exogenous. That means you marry outside your familial group. You know, it's, you, we don't want to end up like the Habsburgs. And right. so, that's smart. But how did it get to be normalized that the, the women go to the man's family such that the father gives away the bride to the husband as opposed to like there's this matrifocal culture, matriarchal culture in China, very pretty small one, where it's very interesting. They have these things called walking marriages where the primary relationships there are between the women's families. That's called a walking marriage because if they decide to get together, the man walks over to the woman's house and, they, and stays until about dawn and then leaves. And mm -hmm. The children still have men in their family because they're raised by the brothers and the cousins. And the interesting thing about this is this makes battering almost impossible because if the man wants to beat his, his wife, he has to deal with aunties, uncles, all of her family, as opposed mm -hmm. to if she went to his family, you know, they're all aligned with him. The point here, the female going to the males, how did that become normalized. So, so, it's a great question. How do things become normalized? You know, here's the thing. Humans live sustainably for most of our existence. The first humans were like 250,000 years ago. And we didn't really start killing the planet till maybe eight or 10,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago. Hmm. And how did that happen? How did that transformation take place? And I certainly have some answers that I would give for that. And evil can come to us in just going along with whatever unquestioned assumptions that have been handed down to us. And again, I want to be really clear. I don't have the juvenile response of that means all of our question, all of our cultural assumptions are bad. In this culture that you've been describing of patriarchy, of domination, of silencing, of oppression, um, where do you see hope and where where are ways in which we are not only resisting the bad, but we are creating the good, especially as it relates to our relationship with the planet, our relationship in the created order, and a way forward as as human beings who are living in a time when we've been destroying the things that are sustaining us? What I guess my a, a good question is, what gives you hope, Derek? Wes Jackson years ago said that he he gave a different version of the Pandora story that 
he says that hope belongs in the box with pestilence and all the other things. Mm-hmm. That hope is actually really harmful. Right, 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 right. I partially agree with that and partly partially don't. So I'm gonna I'm gonna separate hope. First, there's false hope. And false hopes, I think, need to be ruthlessly eradicated. One of the reasons my mother stayed with my father is because there weren't battered women's shelters in the 50s and 60s. But another reason was because of the false hope that he would change. Mm. And I think we need to to get rid of false hopes wherever we can. There's problems with Western medicine, but I like the Western medicine model on this, that when I have Crohn's disease and when they came in to tell me I have Crohn's disease, they didn't say, well, so gosh, you know, things could be worse than they are. The guy walked in and said, the biopsy came back. You've got Crohn's disease. Then he left the room and I cried for an hour and then he came back and we talked about options. I like that. Let's start with where we are. It's like a good doctor friend of mine says, correct diagnosis is the first step toward proper treatment. And it's true with relationships. You know, if you have the false hope that this relationship's going to work out when it really, I mean, sometimes relationships do need that sort of working through. And sometimes it's like, nah, man, it's just got to go. False hopes can frankly also be pretty abusive in a relationship. I remember a friend of mine once said that expecting a person to be different than they are can be like expecting a quadriplegic to run. It's like you're asking them to do something that's not physically possible. And that's not fair to them either. And that has always really stuck with me. So first off, false hopes need to be gotten rid of. And then one day I was doing a talk and I was just bashing hope. And somebody in the audience shouted out, what's your definition of hope? And I said, I have no idea. So we together, me and the audience, came up with a definition of hope that we really liked, which is hope is a longing for a future condition over which you have no agency. And that's how we use it in everyday language. Mm, I love that. Oh, thank you. I don't hope that I eat something after we finish the interview. I'm just going to do it. On the other hand, the next time I get on an airplane, I hope it doesn't crash because once it's in the air, I got no agency. (laughs) Right. And you mentioned a wife. Do you have any children? I do. We have three kiddos, 18, 16, and 14. Okay. So, this is a great example and I've used this with my mom when she was still alive, is if you said to your kid, please clean your room and your kid said, I hope it gets clean, you would respond. (laughs) What the – is what I would respond. Yeah. So, I I was doing a talk one time and I said exactly that and I turned to my mom. My mom was in the audience. I turned to my mom and I said, what would you have said to me if at six or 14 or something, I would have said, yeah, I hope the room gets cleaned. She immediately responded, I would have said, yeah, you better hope it gets cleaned. (laughs) You know, we all know that hope is a non-starter when it comes to something you can do. Yet, when it comes to these larger issues, we all go, gosh, we don't do anything. We say, gosh, I hope salmon survive. Gosh, I hope global warming doesn't kill the planet. Gosh, I hope the oceans survive when we're not doing anything. And I want to be really clear. That doesn't mean I don't believe in hope at all. Somebody came up to me after a talk I did once where I was bashing hope. And she said, do I have to hope my brother can't survive cancer then? And I said, no, of course you can hope your brother can survive cancer. What you can't do is stand there with car keys in your hand and say, I sure hope you make it to the hospital. Mm. So, what I'm really interested in with hope is figuring out where we do and don't have agency. But there is hope. There is room for hope. And this very smart Anishinaabeg woman wrote to me after I was bashing hope some, and she she and I had a conversation about, about where hope does fit in. She, okay. So, look, what salmon need to survive are for dams to be removed, for industrial logging to stop, industrial fishing to stop, for the oceans to stop being murdered, and for global warming to stop. If those don't happen, salmon won't survive. 
And if you sit around and don't do anything and say, gosh, I hope salmon survive, or I pray that the salmon survive, that is, we both agreed, an obscenity. Mm. But if you take out dams, you stop industrial logging, you stop industrial fishing, you stop the murder of the oceans, and you stop global warming, I think that was the other one, then at that point, you have to hope and pray that the salmon and the river accept your offering and they do what they do. Mm. So, I believe very strongly in hope for once we've done what we can do. I don't hope that I get a book written, you know? I hope it gets published. You know, I write the book, I write the best book I can, but then whether it gets published by a publisher is that's beyond my control. That's the pedantic answer to your question. The sort of question of where do I find optimism? Okay, first off, I don't have a lot. Life wants to live and life can be really can be extremely resilient. I want to be really clear. I it upsets me very much when people say, gosh, the earth will be okay. It's really just humans we have to worry about mm. because for a couple of reasons. One is when people say that when I do a talk, um, if people say, you know, the earth will be okay, I'll stop the talk or stop the Q&A and I'll ask if anybody in the audience has a knife and <laughs> somebody will have a pocket knife. I see you see where this is going and I'll, I'll go in the audience. I'll, I'll, I'll take the pocket knife and I'll walk up to the person who asked me or who said the earth's going to be fine. I'll say, can you hold out your hand, please, as I'm holding the knife? And I said, no, of course not. And I say, why not? I mean, you're going to be okay. I'm only going to cut off your fingers. And then after that, <laughs> I'm going to start flaying off, full, pulling off your skin, flaying you. And I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to transform you. And even when your heart stops beating, you're not going to be dead because the back to 90% of the cells in your body don't have your DNA. And there'll be bacteria who'll just be feeding. Everything's just going to transform. And of course, I would never hurt anybody like that. But <laughs> but when you make it about them, or another thing that I'll do is I'll say, oh gosh, we don't need to stop the Holocaust, do we? Because the, the Jews will be fine. There are some who aren't in Poland. There are some who aren't in France. Right. And I'll, another way I'll do it, which is the same, all these three are the same thing, is I'll say, look, there, there's a, a serial killer is torturing and killing members of your family. You say, gosh, let's stop them. It's like, why? You got family members in Cleveland. What's the big deal? I mean, somebody's <laughs> going to survive. But the problem is that when it comes to the planet, we all of a sudden get all academic. And I've had people say, oh, gosh, you know, the, uh, the someday the sun's going to explode. It's like, yeah, and someday you're going to die too. But that doesn't mean that we get to shoot you right now. I mean, this right. doesn't make any sense. Just like bodies. Bodies are extraordinary. I got bit by a dog a few weeks ago. I broke up a dog fight and I pretty much recovered. It's like three or four weeks ago. And it's amazing how the body can heal itself. You know, you don't have to do anything. You just, it just does it. It's the same with, with forests that if they have this miraculous ability to recover, as long as they're not pushed too far, just like a body, you know, I got bit, what, six times by the dog. It wasn't a big deal. It was all fine. It was not nearly as bad as it sounds. You know, if, if it would have torn out my throat, I would I would have died. But, you know, if you it's the same with these, that they can take a certain amount of insult, but at some point they get pushed too far and then they collapse. And mm -hmm. it's the same with with the planet, that there is one dead zone in the ocean that has recovered. And 
it's off the coast. There's 250 dead zones or more than 250 dead zones in the ocean. And one of them did recover. And it's in the Black Sea off the coast of the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was no longer feasible to do agriculture there. And so the runoff into the ocean stopped, into the Black Sea. Within 20 years, the dead zone had recovered enough that a commercial fishery there. Wow. The thing that gives me hope, hope, optimism, is that if it's not pushed too far, some species are really resilient and they can come back. I'll end with a, a, a story here that I just love, which is <laughs> several years ago, the, this guy got really mad at me because I kept saying, you know, we, we need to take out dams. He's like, no, <laughs> taking out dams is the worst thing you can do for a river. I'm a hydrologist and I know. And I didn't know. I'm not a hydrologist. So, I, I wondered. So, I called up all these experts and I would say, hey, so if somebody blows up a dam, will that uh, harm the river below? Hello? Hello? <laughs> and then I, I got smart and I changed the way I asked the question, which I said, okay, so let's pretend that the, the grid has collapsed, the economic system has collapsed, and you and your community have enough dynamite to blow up a dam. And uh, you're going to do it. You're not going to hurt any human beings. Would it be better for the dam to be blown up or would it be better to wait and let it collapse on its own? Because eventually it's going to, you know, it's going to blow mm -hmm. at some point. And they all said, look, all of them, all the, all the biologists, when I asked it that way, they all said the same thing, which is a dam, a dam breaking is just a big flood and floods happen all the time. Rivers can survive them. There was the Missoula flood was, I don't remember if it's 60 miles an hour, 200 feet high for the Columbia River or 200 miles an hour, 60 feet high, one or the other. It just blew out the Columbia River basin Huge. Read up, read up the Missoula floods. They're extraordinary back in the last ice age. Anyway, okay. and salmon survived them. Sturgeon survived them. But the story I really want to tell is there was this one biologist I talked to who worked on a river up in the uh, Olympic National Park that's not dammed. And she said it floods all the time. And every time it floods, it breaks her heart because it kills deer, it kills fish, it kills trees. And dam or floods are really destructive and it, it breaks her heart. But every time it floods, it fills her with joy because that's how the river creates new habitat. So she said, every time the river floods, it's short-term habitat loss for long-term habitat gain. Hmm. And when she said that, it's, it slapped me in the face because that's such a wonderful metaphor for almost everything. Why do people stay in bad relationships? Fear of short-term habitat loss for long-term habitat gain. Why do they stay in jobs they hate? Fear of short-term habitat loss long-term habitat for long-term habitat gain. Why do we not act decisively to protect the planet from this economic system? Fear of short-term habitat loss long-term habitat gain. Why do we go along with any oppressive system? Fear of short-term habitat loss for the long-term habitat gain. And it's it's so so the thing that gives me whatever optimism I do have is the courage of a river to leave the bed that it knows and to uh, move to a new a, a new place, to move across the landscape and go somewhere it hasn't gone before. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, Derek, I, I do want to have you back on because I, I feel like we could just keep talking and talking and talking. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for all of your work in as an eco-philosopher, as a writer, as someone who is an activist. 
And I want to particularly thank you for the book, A Language Older Than Words, that completely rocked my world. It um, is a transformational book, and I, I would hope that everyone who is listening to the podcast would go buy it, would pick it up, and struggle through reading your personal memoir and the connection to the environment and the notion of domination and abuse and healing and moving forward. I, I, I've said this again, and I'll, I'll say it. It is the most transformational book that I have ever read in my life, and it's been an honor to talk to you today. Well, it's really great to talk to you, too. Thank you so much. You're, and your questions are fabulous. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content, and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.